This is the Jason Jones Show, powered by Mudhouse Media. Now, here's Jason Jones. Aloha, everybody, and welcome to the Jason Jones Show. I am your host, Jason Jones, broadcasting from the beautiful hill country of Texas. I'm just going to get right into this. Our interview today is with the great John Zmirak, the senior editor at The Stream. He's had a series of articles breaking down the quote-unquote theology of Pope Francis. And we're going to talk about his most recent article in the series, Pope Francis trying to rehabilitate Derek Chauvin. No, not really. That's He's not that extreme. Just Judas. He's, Pope Francis is rehabilitating Judas. We're going to talk to John Zmirak about that. This episode is being brought to you by Movie to Movement, creating a culture of life, love, and beauty through the power of film. I believe our latest film, Divided Hearts of America, starring Benjamin Watson, which you can download anywhere and everywhere you download movies, played a big part in Planned Parenthood, fessing up that their founder was, yes, indeed, in fact, a virulent racist. Uh, check out our website, movietomovement.com. This episode is also being brought to you by the world's very best slipper. That's my slipper, which you can get at mypillow.com. Mike Lindell took over two years to develop these slippers. You can wear them indoors and outdoors all day long. They're made with my pillow foam, impact gel, and that pre- prevents fatigue. It's made with a quality leather suede. It has faux fur, and for a limited time, you will get 40% off the new My Slippers. Go to mypillow.com, click on the radio listener square, use the code Jones for those deep, deep discounts. And now for my interview with the great John Zmirak. John Zmirak, welcome to the Jason Jones Show. Thanks, Jason. It's been too long. Yeah, thanks for sitting through the introduction. I just wanted to make sure we got this up in one big chunk so we could get it. Up and out. So Pope Francis would never dare try to rehabilitate Donald Trump, Derek Chauvin. Is that my pronouncing his name right? The police officer in Minnesota. Yeah. Uh, Pope Francis would not try to rehabilitate Derek Chauvin, but he would. But he is trying to rehabilitate Judas. What is this malady that? Yeah. Let me go. Let me go through this piece by piece, Jason. And thank you for the opportunity. I've been on the Eric Metaxas show a couple times talking about this. It's a very complex issue, but, but it took actually five columns to fully explicate what's going on here because it, it's a witch's brew of bad theology, political machinations, and, global, and globalist scheming for power. Um, in part one of the piece at stream.org, I hope you will check it out, it's uh, three, three parts. Pope Francis tries to rehabilitate Judas, parts one, two, and three. And then more ideas occurred to me, so I did two more columns to really explicate it. So, I mean, this might even be a book someday. Okay. Reservatory Romano, the Pope's official newspaper, marked Holy Week in 2021 by running a whole series of articles questioning whether Judas was damned. They... Uh, they did a picture that there was this mystic French painter did a painting of the naked Jesus bending over t- tenderly ministering to a dead Judas. There were columns, a comment by the, by the former Cardinal Martini, 
um, all sorts of things to suggest that Jesus might in fact, Judas might in fact have been saved. Now, this is something rather shocking, and you wonder why Pope Francis would take this on. But actually, if you, if you follow all the arguments and all the things he says, it helps illuminate the real apparent agenda of his papacy. Um, according to the news report, Judas goes, uh, Pope Francis goes through the story of Judas. He presents Judas as a difficult character to understand. He says, first, he sincerely repents. Then the righteous ones, the Jewish priests he went back to with the money, they reject him. So he says he can find a way out of his situation. He's overcome with a guilt that suffocates him. So that's interesting. He is blaming the priest, the, the high priest, not Judas, and, and saying that he, he's using language, the righteous ones, the doctors of the law. That's the same language Pope Francis uses when he refers to Orthodox Catholics. For instance, when we say divorce and remarriage are not possible, and we quote the words of Jesus arguing against the Pharisees, Pope Francis claims that if you interpret Jesus' words literally, that there's no divorce and remarriage permitted, you are being a Pharisee. You are being a doctor of the law. Whereas those who would permit divorce and remarriage are acting more like Jesus. Now think about that. If you actually apply Jesus' plain words, literally, you're being a Pharisee. But if you do what the Pharisees wanted, as opposed to what Jesus wanted, then you're showing the kind of mercy Jesus wants from us, even though he said otherwise. Does that make sense? No, but I mean, can you follow the twisted argument there? Yeah, I'm following your twisted argument, but as you're making this twisted argument, as you're explaining this twisted argument, I still don't understand, and you'll get to it, why he's going down this, this road to begin with. Of, of course. Okay, well, yes, we're building up to that. But look at the weird conversion there. If you follow Jesus against the Pharisees, you are being Pharisaical. Whereas if you provide extra mercy, more than Jesus apparently offered or wanted us to offer— then you are being like Jesus, and you're. What happens is you're putting Jesus in the position of the Pharisees. You're saying that what our Lord said is this dead, stultifying law, but we have come up with a new and hopeful dispensation. In other words, Pope Francis is putting himself as, as a second Christ with a new gospel that uh, make, renders obsolete the one that Jesus preached. That's kind of ominous. That gives you kind of an end time chilled on the back on it, doesn't it? Well, um, well, it's inverted. Even it's not as if they're they're sophists. It's it's they've taken it and they've just turned it upside down. Where the the Pharisees are unforgivable and Judas is forgive forgiven. Right, right. All right. So uh, Marion Warmoth wrote about this. Wrote about this at the site Tradition in Action, the TFP site. And she did a good job. She spent, she theorized that Pope Francis has gotten drunk on his own notion of mercy, and that he borrowed it from Hans Urs von Balthasar. Hans Urs von Balthasar wrote a, wrote a book, uh, Dear We Hope That All Men Are Saved, and he, in it, tried to recycle Origen's old heresy of universal salvation. Um, I don't really think von Balthasar 
is what was is what's going on here. Pope Francis is kind of using von Balthasar, but but okay. Let's look at why the the church has taught that Judas was damned. It doesn't say that about anyone else in particular. It said it about Jesus. Pope Francis wants to undermine that. I said it said it about Judas. Pope Francis wants to undermine that. Well, let's look at why the church has has said that Judas was damned. Uh, he said to Judas, to his face, speaking to his a group of apostles on Holy Thursday during the Last Supper, the last time he's addressing the apostles as a group before his death, he's about to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. He knows exactly what's going to happen to him. This is the first Eucharist. These, these men have just been made priests and bishops, including Judas. And Jesus says, to, says about Judas, looking in his face, it would be better for that man if he had not been born. What could that mean, Jason? If you go to heaven, ever, if you ever get to heaven, after a billion years in purgatory, it's still better for you than if you had never been born, right? Yes. It's pretty so clear. This, the church, by taking Jesus' words seriously and applying, the, applying logic to them and, and not treating them as something it can, it can ferret out loopholes or negate or supersede, that the, the Pope doesn't have the power to supersede the words of Jesus. The church has always said, it seems quite likely, it seems certain actually, based on Jesus' own words, that Judas was damned. Just as we are sure that the good thief on the cross was saved because Jesus said, quote, this day you will be with me in paradise, unquote. So are we going to doubt that too? Are we going to doubt that the good thief was saved? We might as well. Those both statements are equally categorical and equally straightforward. Um, it, at this point, it seems like maybe, maybe Pope Francis is caught up in von Balthasar's kind of platonic theory. Von Balthasar thinks it finds it more aesthetic and more satisfying and more of a complete triumph for God if at the very end everyone is saved, which is what Origen taught. That's Platonism, though. That's not particularly Christianity. Well, now in part two, uh, which I call Pope Francis trying to rehabilitate Judas, part two, mercy for Judas the betrayer, but not for Trump the wall builder. Here I want to examine, is Pope Francis really just promiscuously offering mercy to everyone? Uh, is he an honest idealist, like as I think von Balthasar was, an origin was, who's just getting something wrong, or something else going on? Well, notice that uh, Pope Francis uses language, the, the righteous ones, the doctors of the law, referring to the Sanhedrin, who condemned Jesus and who reject Judas, he's using the same language he uses for conservative Catholic theologians who don't want homosexual marriage or divorce and remarriage. So that's interesting. He, he seems to be treated, almost treating Judas as if he were, I don't know, some transgender person who wanted to teach at a Catholic school or something. But Francis's rhetoric of mercy is highly selective. Um, I think you've spoken before about John Gravino, this Catholic theologian who did a book confronting the Pope of suspicion, of the Pope, confronting the Pope of suspicion. 
and it, it's a it's a re- responsive Pope Francis and uh, oh, who's that bishop? Uh, bishop Barron, who are making more and more room for homosexuals to be active and have roles of power and influence inside the church. Okay, Pope Francis, and he has this rhetoric of mercy. He's very selective. He offers it to sinners whose offenses mirror his own political stances. For instance, the actual abortionist, Emma Bonino, she performed thousands of abortions. She has crusaded for abortion to be legal in Italy. It's probably the single woman most responsible for it. She has never repented. Or what about Jeffrey Sachs, who has promoted abortion and forced population control around the world and has never repented? Pro-choice U.S. politicians, Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden, all get invitations and congratulations from Pope Francis. They have never repented. Imagine the father in the story of the prodigal son. Imagine the father swagging all the way to the pigsty to offer the prodigal son a pat on the back, a boy, and then he pulls out a revised will, disinheriting the older brother. That is Pope Francis's model of mercy. Yeah, and he would he disinherit he, the prodigal son if the prodigal son repented. I think repentance in and of itself would be anathema. Right. I think right. repentance would, would be offensive to. Francis. I think Milo Yiannopoulos repenting for being homosexual and, and, and promising to do his very best to live a chaste life must be unforgivable at this point. Absolutely. It is the one. Uh, repentance is the only sin against the Holy Spirit. So let's look at Pope Francis's mercy when applied to people who don't agree with his politics. Remember how he denounced Donald Trump and all his supporters who favored a border wall to control our southern border and apply the rule of law there? He denounced them as not Christians. In a speech in 2017, he said the same of anyone, anywhere who manufactures weapons for anybody at all. Anybody. He made no exceptions. He dropped this pearl in the course of a speech where he also condemned Franklin Roosevelt and Winston Churchill for not bombing the tracks that led to the death camps during the Holocaust, which she just, what was, what was, what should they have dropped on the tracks? Bibles, self-help books, maybe books by Pope Francis. Cause it, cause weapons, bombs are weapons. So apparently they shouldn't have the weapons to fight the Nazis, but they should have used them to stop the Holocaust, except that the weapons shouldn't exist because it's unchristian to make them. This is not a well-meaning, clear thinking, idealistic pastor. He has this no respect for the, Yeah, has no respect for people reading him. They, they because anyone who demands consistency is to be ignored. I mean, he deserves to be heckled off the stage. They should just throw peanuts at him. But he's a Machiavellian Peronist politician. He speaks out of both sides of his mouth. His yes never means yes. His no never means no. They're more like sophisticated chess moves. He's, he's moving pieces around in a battle for dominance over the institutional church. Not that he cares about that for its own sake, apparently. He seems to think of it as a battle, as a weapon in a battle for what really matters, which is control over, the Western, over Western countries and their vast wealth and influence. He wants us to think Judas might be a saint, but offers no empathy to conservative pro-life voters in the U.S. or populist voters around the world. 
we on the prodigal sons, merciless elder brother. We're the callous Sadducees who threw Judas to the wolves. We're the self-righteous Pharisees who wished to stone the adulterous woman. And we deserve whatever Google, Facebook, Biden, and the Chinese government have in mind for us. That is Pope Francis's notion of mercy, as made clear from all the things he does and says. But we haven't even hit the bottom, Jason. There's a more interesting philosophical side of this that I think explains not just Pope Francis, but the kind of progressive Christians who are attracted to him and to his new gospel. And that I read about in part three. Pope Francis tried to rehabilitate Judas, part three, falling in love with the gutter. Now, this one, it can get into some deep waters, but I, I you know, so ask me questions. It's something I say is confusing, but I, I hope you'll, you'll let me walk you through this. No, I'm, I'm, um, I'm listening. Back, okay, thanks. Back in the 1980s, I was an undergrad at Yale, and one of my one of my teaching assistants was from Denmark, and she was very sweet and kind of pretty, and I, I she invited students to a presentation of something called American Pictures. Have you ever heard of it, Jason? American pictures. I have. So I had you on mute because there was a dog barking in the yeah. background. I loved it. Okay. So it's a two-hour slideshow of pictures that this Danish guy named Jakob Holt, uh, these are pictures he took in the, in the 1970s of very poor rural black people who were just like seven, eight years. Yeah, I'm going to put them in the, in the, I'm going to put them in the show notes. I'm going to link to them. Okay. Okay. Um, and very wealthy Americans who he somehow got into their houses and like, invited himself in. And they let him in, and he just took pictures of how nice their houses were. Um, and he, but on the website, he refers he talks about them as the filthy rich because he basically blames them for the condition of the poor black people, which they didn't directly cause. You know, but anyway, all that is debatable, and and you can see there's some heritage and historic injustice and. Legacy of slavery, there's real things, there are real things there. But the last fourth of the store show, it's all about street walking drag queen prostitutes in San Francisco. These people, Mr. Holt said, these are the most marginalized, the most disadvantaged community in America. These prostitutes and these transvestites. We should be politically advocating for them and pushing for their acceptance in mainstream America. They are like Christ figures because they're the most despised and rejected of men. Not that there's any reason why people might be offended by transvestite prostitutes. It doesn't matter. Their, their intrinsic virtues are, don't matter. The only thing that matters is that they're despised and rejected and that they, that they have suffering. So that's why we should make them Christ figures who we advocate for politically. That stuck with me. That, that stuck with me as a kind of a weird and creepy but emotionally appealing perversion of Christianity. And I think it has grown and grown and grown. Uh, Jakob Holt has, has shown his little show, American Pictures, more than 6,500 times at universities around the world. Over 43 years, he's been spreading the gospel of wokeness like some warped modern St. Paul. This brings us back to, towards Judas, okay? When faith and reason bump up against each other, how are we supposed to deal with that? 
you know, how do we integrate faith and reason? How do we integrate the Old Testament and the New Testament? How do we make a synthesis of these things? Well, there is a strain in Christianity that doesn't want to do that. It doesn't want to reconcile faith and reason. It doesn't want to keep them in, in a creative tension. They don't want to reconcile the Old Testament and the New. They don't want to reconcile the demands of family life, political life, civilizational life with the demands of the gospel. In fact, what they want to do is show that they're absolutely incompatible and opposed and then relish their own extreme extremity in choosing only the New Testament with no reference to the Old. Only faith without reference to reason. Only spiritual life without reference to, to, to physical life. Only the soul without any reference to the body. I call these Christians who do this Gnostics, G-N-O-S-T-I-C-S, Gnostics, because they dishonor creation, the natural law, God's ancient teaching to his people, the Jews, and our God-given human reason. I'll give you examples of people who've done this over the course of history. Christians who endorsed absolute pacifism, like Leo Tolstoy and Dorothy Day. Christians who rejected private property, like the spiritual Franciscans, uh, the people who spun off of, of St. Francis into heresy. People who reject national borders, like Pope Francis. People who fetishize poverty, suffering, or wretchedness for their own sake. And I would say the French novelist Léon Bois, would be an example of this. They have contempt for marriage as a noble state of Christian life. Blaise Pascal believed that. Mother Anne Lee, who founded the Shakers, called for absolute celibacy. It would solve all our problems in 70 short years. Um, then there's antinomianism, the, the claim that Christians are free of all, all moral laws. Uh, the, the heretic Marcion taught that, and the, the early Lutheran heretic Johannes Agricola taught that, and it, it kept recurring in the course of history. And finally, <clears throat> fideism. That's a contempt for human reason. Uh, it, it looks at acts of faith as better the more irrational they are. You take delight in outraging human reason, and then outraging church authority, and finally outraging even the scripture. This tendency appeared in the early church father Tertullian, and in the Danish philosopher, Kierkegaard. What unites these seemingly disparate heresies is that in each case, they look only at what's unique, surprising, and even shocking about Jesus' words and deeds. And it decides that these are the only elements that matter. Instead of seeing what Jesus says and does in the context of the Old Testament and human reason, and the teachings of the early church, which is how we're supposed to look at them as Catholics. No, we should only look at our Bibles, trust our hearts, and negate every other consideration. We can even take a perverse pride in outraging the plain necessities of preserving the human family from extinction, because that's a worldly concern. So one person can read, turn the other cheek, and demanding national pacifism in the face of the Mongols, the Nazis. Another can take from units for the kingdom of heaven the need for universal celibacy. Pope Francis takes from Jesus' special love for the poor the political gospel that the poor and the marginalized, as, as he interprets it, they're the chosen people. They're the real people of God, and we must spread poverty and marginalization around the world through socialism and mass immigration. 
We should intentionally impoverish wealthy countries until, in Francis' so, own words, a universal austerity. He wants austerity for the whole planet. So rather than baptism being necessary for salvation, utter poverty is necessary. So That's correct. So now, like a, the good Jesuit he is, instead of traveling around the world um, trying to baptize First Nation peoples in South America— He's trying to impoverish First Nations people in South America. He's, his goal is and to make everyone us. poor and make us poor, too, so we can be right. saved. And you know the political, political side of that? With the middle class gone, the world will be made up of billions of poor, obedient subjects ruled by tiny groups of benevolent elites, folks like Pope Francis, his pals at the World Economic Forum, and the Chinese Communist Party. And you see the, we see these paradoxes. There are paradoxes in Christianity. Um, and we're meant to keep contrasting values in tension with each other. The Old Testament and the New. Faith and reason. The individual and the community. But if you have this Gnostic tendency, you will always go for some irrational extreme. And you'll be proud of how irrational it is because it proves how dedicated you are, how sincere you are. It's like you're showing off. Uh, you can, who, which of us can more outrage the demands of, of reason and the demands of, of earthly life and prove that we're the purest Christians? It's kind of a contest. For instance. Well, can I, pay, John, can I push back real quick? Yeah. I push back real quick? Yes. I, I think yes. it might yes. not even be that noble. I think he's just uh, conforming to the spirit of the age and taking the past of least, res, least resistance for prestige and power. And influence. I mean, he may be, that may be what he's doing, yeah. But, um, and if you I look said, at Bishop Barron, he's so, they're so clever. They're so, you, you know, you can see them. It's like what, looking out your window, like I can often do, and watch my, 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 my seven year old play army with the, his friends in the neighborhood. And I can see their little, I can watch their little tactics in the yard as they're, they're trying to maneuver against one another. That they're almost childlike in their simplicity, but, most people aren't paying attention, so Baron gaslights them. They're manipulated by the Pope. But at the end of the day, I just see they're conforming to the spirit of the age. They're just petty little victimists feigning concern for the poor, for power and wealth for themselves. And they're not even like Dorothy Day, who I think what you're saying would be true about Dorothy Day, who thought, you know, she, she loved the poor so much she wanted to make them make, make more poor people. Um, exactly. Well, I, look, I agree with you about Pope Francis and Bishop, and Bishop Barron, but it, the cynical explanation can't cover everybody. It, uh, not everybody who believes Pope Francis and what he says, they're maybe not all cynical. They're, they may be fooled. And what he's using to fool them is this Gnostic brand of Christianity. And I think I can gotten actually to the bottom of this through a story by Borges. The Argentinian science fiction writer. I love him. He's a wonderful writer. Pope Francis has claimed him as his own favorite writer, Borges. He's the biggest writer in Argentina. There's a story Borges wrote that I think gave Pope Francis his inspiration for how to weaponize this kind of Christian Gnosticism for the political left. But let me get to that at the end. If you collapse the Christian paradox, you always end up with some kind of crazy heresy. For instance, in the parable of the prodigal son, did Jesus mean to teach us that duty and obedience and hard work and careful stewardship, like the older brother had, that those things are evil? 
I don't think he did. The father says to the elder son, all I have is yours. I think Pope Francis would like to take that out. He would rather that he disinherit the elder son. Um, by taking the form of a servant in the incarnation, did Jesus mean that only poor people and weak people and powerless people can be saved? By offering himself as a victim for our sins and suffering, did Jesus demand we all go out and be martyred? It's the only form of holiness. By not getting married, did Jesus mean we all have to live as monks? A Gnostic Christian would say yes to any or all of these things because he favors only what's strange, otherworldly, and counterintuitive about the gospel. That's the real Christianity. So throw out the Old Testament where it says, you know, your country will prosper if you follow the law, where it says build walls to protect your nation, where it says, you know, you should have holy kings and holy leaders. No. What you need is only the marginalized and, 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 the, and the cast off. So Judas, uh, these transvestite prostitutes in San Francisco, the worse, the more wretched they are, even if it's their own fault. It doesn't matter. And I've seen people even try to take priests who, who are sexual abusers and make them out to be victims whom we should feel sorry for because they're despised, right? That is falling in love with the gutter. And that is a, a, a profound perversion of Christianity where, you know, you, you, you love St. Mary Magdalene, not because she became a saint, but because she used to be a prostitute. It, it's a very weird, perverse inversion of all our natural, God-given, rational instincts. Well, here's the story by Borges that I want to talk about. It's called Three Versions of Judas. Three versions of Judas, and if you Google it, it is actually available online in English. It is worth reading. It's written in the style of a, like a satirical, it's a scholarly, it pretends to be a scholarly article about a, about a, a Swedish theologian. A Swedish theologian <clears throat> who sounds a lot like Kierkegaard. He falls into the Gnostic trap. He sees Jesus' suffering and degradation during the Passion as the essence of what it is to be the Savior. It's not his divinity, his obedience to the Father, it's not his expiation of sins. It is his wretchedness and his desperation and his suffering in themselves are what make him the Savior. But this theologian, in Borges' story, realizes Jesus was not the most wretched, tortured soul ever to walk the earth. Judas was. Judas suffered anguish. He faced rejection. He took on himself the worst sin imaginable, betrayal of his own friend and of God himself. He knowingly consigned himself, not just to death, but to hell. Judas knew he was going to hell, hanged himself anyway, because he, that was the real sacrifice that redeemed mankind. Judas going to hell and staying there forever. Now, Borges wrote this as a satire. He was trying, I think, to satirize just this crazy Gnostic instinct in Christianity that I've been talking about. Pope Francis having Borges as one of his favorite writers, he read it, and I think he decided, yeah, this is the way to weaponize Christian Gnosticism in order to turn the church inside out and make it the more perfect servant of the world, of Mammon, Caesar, and Sodom, of the World Economic Forum and the Chinese Communist Party. I think you wrapped it up with a neat bow right there. I mean, that's exactly what has happened, hasn't it? We, 
It's the, yeah. but then it is, that would be antichrist. That would be anti-church. Perfectly. Yeah. yeah. And I even wrote a, I wrote a graphic novel in 1994, imagining a Vatican run by someone like this. 19 years before Pope Francis was elected, I was, I wrote an imaginary story called The Grand Inquisitor. It's a graphic novel, and it's available still. The Grand Inquisitor by John Zverek, and it's a really wild graphic novel. And I predicted this 19 years before Pope Francis. I don't know how. Let me ask you this. Here's what I don't understand. What you can see so clearly, more and more Catholics, more and more people can see so clearly. Peter Thiel has famously said my two-word answer for why I'm not Catholic. He said Pope Francis. Um, yeah, the, uh, you know, Bishop Barron, he's a chatty Kathy. He talks about everything under the sun. He, he viciously attacked a schoolboy, Nick Sandman, as the world was pouncing on him, was silent on the persecuted church in the face of ISIS, has never said a word about the, the Uyghurs in concentration camps, which by the way, if all he did was talk about the liturgy and prayer life, I wouldn't call on him to do that. But, you, you, you know, they virtue signal, like you said, a perfect, how did you put it, that perfectly conformed to the, the world, the needs of the world. To, serve. Caesar, to Caesar, Mammon, and Sodom. Yeah, so you the have Pope Francis things. bringing Nike executives together with NBA stars and the owners of NBA teams, so millionaires and billionaires. He brings them to talk about the plight of the vulnerable while literally never once challenging China leave the Uyghur in the concentration camps, never once challenging China on his own sheep, on, the, on, on Catholics in concentration camps. He wouldn't camps. even meet Cardinal, Cardinal Zen came to Rome and Pope Francis refused to meet with him. Maybe he should have performed some abortions and then Francis would have invited him in. You know, yeah, or, or, or gay weddings or, or ordained women. Yeah. Why is it that for, so Catholics who are listening to the, listen to this show and then they listen to Barron or they admire Francis, why can't they see what we see, that they are loveless monsters? I don't think anyone who still believes in Pope Francis by this point is sincere. So uh, I think they're they're just faking it, going through the motions. They were never Catholics in the first place. So I have no message to them. What What about Barron? I, I so I just... They, I... they were Judases all along. So I was talking to oh, a lady. Sorry, I just... No, okay. I, you know, so last week I was a, a lovely woman who was going on and on about how great Bishop Barron was. And then I made my case that maybe Bishop Barron isn't so great. And that she said, oh, but I love him. I'm like, well, yes, you're an affluent white donor who probably went to a Jesuit high school and had poor formation. And you are, you, you, he, he works very hard on cultivating your affection for donations. Um, yeah. <laughs> and this was at a dinner and my wife's like, this is the guy I married. Where did this guy go? You haven't been like this for a while. Um, but uh, I was just, fr I'm just frustrated. She seemed like a very thoughtful woman, a, a very sincere Catholic woman. But then when I brought up to her, you know, the Nick Sandman case where he, you know, he attacked Nick Sandman yeah. and then basically didn't apologize for it, just said, next time I'll stay out of these types of things. When instead of saying, next time when I see a Catholic child being attacked by the world, I'll defend him. Uh, right. You know, what's, is it right. they're just desperate for nostalgia of the days of clergy? They just so want a priest to say we can love and trust and respect this guy? I miss, I have that feeling, Jason. I, 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 I wish 
there were bishops, a lot, a lot of bishops around who I could trust. You know, it, it, it sounds funny. Officially, the the Pope is supposed to be our ordinary, our, our ultimate teacher on how to apply Christianity to daily life, including politics. And our local bishop is supposed to be our teacher about Christian doctrine and, and again, how to apply it in daily life, including politics and society. That idea is ludicrous. It's laughable to me. My entire life, the, our local bishop was the enemy promoting heresy, and we, we tried to look to the Pope for protection against him, and now the Pope himself is a transmission belt for heresy. The Orthodox are far better off than we are because they might have a heretical bishop here or there, but they don't have a central authority that's able to shove heresy into every corner of the church all around the world. The centralization that the Vatican imposed in 1870 is coming back to bite us because Pope Francis can take out good bishops and replace them with low IQ nasty homosexuals which seems to be his preference for bishops. Now you get people like Tobin, people like Kupich, people like McElroy. These are just gay guys who are not smart enough for, for the Democratic National Committee and not talented enough for Broadway, but they wanted to live in a palace like the Disney princesses. They always knew they were, so they went to bishop school. I mean, so to be fair, we don't, we don't know that they're gay. We do know they're not that bright. I mean, if... Well, right. We, right, they're politics, though. They constantly promote the gay agenda. That's true. So if they're not gay, if they're not gay, it really doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> so they, they are a lavender mafia, whether or not, I don't even want to think about their private lives, okay? That's but true. they're promoting the gospel of Sodom. So as far as that's what I mean by it. Well, I when you really say the lavender mafia, the, the fact is these are the people who are vicious and cruel and, and, and aggressive to any humble little faithful Catholic in their parish that tries to do anything that's orthodox, start a rosary group, start a pro-life ministry, you know, uh, bring courage to their parish. These, 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 this lavender mafia. And this is why I'm tired of these Catholics who Jason, we need to be kind. We need to be nice. We need to be sweet. Yes, I agree. We need to to defend people that are being bullied in the church by this lavender mafia, which is real, and they are a joke and they're laughable. It's, 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 you know, um, advocates for the their their agenda and the the you know women. I call them Judas's in a dress. They're like the Gestapo. I mean, they monitor everything. They write nasty letters. You know, you talked about trusting our bishops. I had a friend who had the rights to a journal, a post-abortion healing journal. She brought it to the USCCB. She said to me, hey, I hired this publicist. We're bringing, she got me a meeting with the USCCB. I begged her to cancel the meeting. I said, God forbid you tell those people what you're doing. That would be like sitting down with Hitler and trying to tell them about your plans for the Normandy invasion. You do not want them to know what you're up to. She didn't listen to me. She thought I was nuts. She went and met with these folks from the USCCB. It like literally ended in them trying to seize her journal, edit it against her will and, and threats of lawsuits on both sides and right you have you have to see what the u.s catholic establishment has become it is soft lazy big dumb and gay it's our adversarian making sure our kids get my john my kids can't go to a catholic school in our diocese unless they get 
the COVID vaccine uh, and exp- something hasn't been approved. I, I could send them to public school. Made, made using unborn, made using unborn babies, and the, our bishops are make are taking the stand that you have to take this vaccine, which was you done with research from murdered unborn babies, just like the research that Yosef Mengele did in the death camps in World War II. So we that is how bad it has become. With the Pope is saying you have an obligation to take this vaccine. When in fact, he should be saying that only those who are with real fear of death from the, vac- from the, from the virus ought to maybe consider taking it under protest. All that Vatican money that gets sloshed around, why aren't we developing ethical vaccines that aren't predicated on the, the butchered bodies of unborn babies? That's a good question. But until that day, why can I send, we homeschool, but we were looking... In Texas, there seemed to be a lot more opportunities for good schools. We wanted to check out the Catholic schools, but it became immediately a no-go because we would have to, our children would have to take vaccines that were not derived ethically. But guess where I could send my kids? To the local evangelical evangelical school. school. Yes. I could even send them to what? The local um, public school. I could get a religious exemption. for the public school, yeah. I, I, I could send them to. There's several evangelical schools in the community I could send my children to, but I cannot send them to a, a Catholic school. So when it comes to teaching Catholic- my children Catholic morals and ethics, I can't count on my own bishop for support. I, I, I hit him and his staff are my adversary. They're my adversary. Right. When it comes to looking for examples in the world to stand up heroically to the greatest evils of the age, like ISIS and or the CCP, I, I see my Pope was silent. He knew he was wrong. That's why when he went to Iraq, his first words were, I'm sorry, I come as a penitent. Yet, shamelessly, not a single word. The man who's trying to exonerate Judas doesn't have a single... Imagine if he took all that time and energy, he's exonerating Judas, to speak out for the, 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 the Uyghur. He has a friendship with the CCP. Those are his buddies. He's got some sort of secret deal. He can say, hey, we've got this deal, but part of the deal is... No concentration camps. How about that? That's one of the parts of the deal. You cannot enslave millions of people and harvest their organs, force the women to have abortions. How about that? How about that's a good place for our relationship to begin? No. In fact, Pope Francis likes the social credit system. He likes the Chinese communist political system. That's what Bishop Sarando said. Bishop Sarando went to visit, who's, by the way, remember, Pope Francis is number two, essentially. He is the guy in charge of Catholic social teaching, talking about economics and politics, very high up, hand-picked, appointed by Pope Francis, Bishop Marcello Sarando, went to communist China and said it offered a better example of Catholic social teaching than the United States. Then Bishop Sarando went to a meeting of Chinese scientists to, to announce that Pope Francis loves China communist China, trusted China, and intended to recognize communist China instead of Taiwan. Jason, do you know what group he went to meet with? It was a meeting of the Chinese communist government's organ thieves, the people who run its program of stealing organs from Uyghurs in concentration camps and Christians, Catholic and Protestant, in, in, in political prisons, Stealing their organs while sometimes while they're still alive and selling them on the global black market. This is the meeting 
Bishop Serrano chose to visit to express Pope Francis's deep appreciation of communist China. I'm sorry, Jason. Anybody who knows this stuff and still admires Pope Francis is, is not sincere. Nobody's that stupid. So, But, John, so there's people listening right now, I can promise you, that cringed when you said gay bishops like Supich. You called them gay. They cringed like, oh, my. But they don't cringe when you talk about Serrano going to a meeting of organ harvesters. It's true. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to link to your article on that, John, in the show notes. Um, the silence of the Vatican in the face of the Uyghur genocide, let alone the oppression of our own co-religionists in, in China. Um, they don't cringe at that. Why don't they cringe at that? Is that go, does that go back to your, you know, um, your original thesis that they're attracted to what's the gutter? They love the gutter. So, well, I, I mean, I, I think there's a human reaction just no, noting the fact that straight men have been kicked out of seminaries for the last 40 years and gay men have been welcomed. And the estimates for the percentage of gay Catholics of gay priests, according to the, the bishops, the U.S. bishops' own John Jay statement, it, it, its estimates were between 15% and 55% gay men are our priests. Given that maybe 2% of the general population are gay, that means the priesthood and the episcopacy are overwhelmingly gay. I mean, like Broadway choreographer level concentration beyond that of the general population. Uh, so when I talk about that, well, I mean that there is basically a sisterhood controlling the clergy, and I don't know how this gets fixed, Jason. I don't know how you turn the sorority yeah, th- back into a fraternity. Well, I think I know how two things. Yeah, I feel sorry for a lot of them because I, I imagine, yeah. I imagine that many of them as young boys, as young men with same-sex attraction in the seventies, sixties, seventies, even eighties. They wanted to love God, make their family proud. They were wrestling with same-sex attraction, and they thought they'd run to seminary for safety, but it would be like, you know, me running to, uh, you know, spring break uh, to try to live a, a faithful marriage, right? You'd, you'd, I'd run to Fort Lauderdale. It's not the, probably wasn't the best strategy for a young man with same-sex attraction. Right. I think that's true. And I then that's you know, true. And at an individual level, I feel for men who, who made these decisions. but. So they, once they became gay activists in right. the priesthood and started keeping out straight men and started favoring their own little sect and colluding, I mean, a lot, a lot of using seminaries is 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 uh, they as traps to prey on young men, right? That's well, I mean, that's, that's what was happening. Cardinal McCarrick, Cardinal McCarrick was was visiting seminaries and and picking out the handsome seminarian and having them sleep in bed with him. And other bishops knew this, and they did John, nothing. I knew it in D.C. as a young atheist. Everyone talked wow. about it. You'd be at the bars, and everyone I knew that went to Steubenville or Christendom that worked at the USCCB or worked in a church, any, any sort of Catholic apostolate, I'd go to Theology on Tap, McCarrick would be there, and everyone would be snickering. Everyone would be snickering at the tables telling McCarrick stories. And... Like, I didn't believe it. I'd be like, guys, you can't gossip. Like, how do you know? And they're like, well, no, we know. And this priest told me, and they all knew. And I'd sort of like, ah. Um, but no one even seemed well, to have a sense of urgency. to be. You know, no one had a sense of urgency about it. It was just something that was funny. 
it, you know, they would all these Catholic young people would talk about it and laugh. Um, Bishop Kupich, this is Bishop Kupich when he was refusing to uh, to reform our policies on sex abuse. He made a public statement that we must be careful not to apply these punishments to same-sex relationships in, seminari- in seminaries that are consensual. So basically, if it's not statutory rape, if the, if the kid is, if the boy is not guilty, Kupich has no problem with with him being a priest. If 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 you if the, if the young men you pray you pray on sexually are above the late the age of consent, the church doesn't really have a problem with it. That's Bishop Cardinal Kupich, what probably the most powerful cardinal in America. That's his position on chastity in the priesthood. Basically. Make sure you leave the jailbait alone. Given that he said that, when I say gay, I mean part of the gay agenda. I don't even want to think about his private life. I don't care. I care what he's promoting in the church, and it's disgusting. It's satanic. I'm at the point, Jason. I've written seven Catholic apologetics books. I've been an active apostolic Catholic since early high school. At this point, when I hear someone's becoming a Catholic, my stomach turns. I don't say anything, but I'm actually sad. You know, when I came into the church in 2003, in the midst of the, the abuse year, so many Catholics would say to me, why? You know, why? And um, it is sad that you know that when people enter the church, they're entering the church of Jack Chick that he, he wrote about in those goofy little comic strips of his. and um, Jason, I wrote a column two years ago. Has Jack Chick seized control of the Catholic Church from beyond the grave? But, but <laughs> I, I think from time Chick to time, time, I think from time to time, uh, the church has been seized by the spirit that Jack, that that thin-souled propagandist Jack Chick would write about. But, you know, when I entered the church... I really looked to the, becoming Orthodox. I longed to be Orthodox for the liturgy and just I felt it was sheltered from the spirit of the age in a way. Um, but when I really just came to understand I had to become Catholic, I studied the schism, the several schisms actually, uh, for two years. And I just realized I'm moving to Rwanda. I'm, it's not going to be an evangelical church where everyone's Republican. Uh, and of my socioeconomic status, I'm going to go into a church that the the doors have been kicked wide open and uh, the winds of the world are whipping around and through. But I did not imagine this. It's just become so strange and so sorrowful, especially with the work. And they're yeah. so shameless. Like the, the viciousness and the shamelessness is what is shocking to me. And well, they won. Their church won the 2020 election. Joe Biden, that degenerate, depraved, former segregationist, soulless opportunist hack, is the model of American Catholicism that they've been looking for, and they're very proud of him. They are very, very proud. If you saw uh, Archbishop Gonzalez of, of, of Los Angeles, who's no conservative, tried to issue some mild rebuke of Joe Biden for being a fanatical abortion advocate, and Kupich smacked him down. 
the institution, this multi-billion dollar institution that mostly lives on taxpayer money. 40% of the bishop's money comes from the taxpayer via nonprofit contracts to help immigrants and groups like that. So you can see the financial incentive of the bishops in promoting the Democrats. It is an inst- it's just a big, fat, inefficient federal contractor that runs a few Catholic chapels with rainbow flags hanging in a lot of them. And um, so, I mean, I'm Catholic. I still go to Mass, but all the new friends I've made here in Texas are evangelicals because I just can't stand being around these institutions that are dominated by the Church of Kupich and Francis and Biden. Well, look, in this church, you have to sign up to go to mass. You know, they're, they're, yeah. they're even when the state lifts, like in uh, California, the bishops don't budge. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sorry, in Texas. Uh, the, yeah, the bishops are like California bishops. But yeah, like this, when the state of Texas opens up, our churches don't. So they're not even giving us the sacraments. Yeah. They're, not, they're not assisting me in, in my duty to give my children a Catholic education. They're actually getting in my way, saying you'd have to give your kids this vaccine-derived from a, ch- a child destroyed in the womb. Um, when it comes for speaking out for the vulnerable in the world, absolute and utter silence. And when it comes to speaking up for the vulnerable in this country, do you know with this, this Derek, this whole Minnesota thing, John? Um, yeah. I, I looked at this, this George Floyd guy. I like him. You know, he seemed to be a broken guy with addiction problems. I got a lot of that in my family. He looks like someone I'd run with. This Derek Siobhan guy looks like a broken guy. Doesn't look like the kind of guy I would I'd run with. The community they're from, shattered. I don't hear anybody, a 15-year-old girl got shot yesterday trying to stab another girl as her friend was getting punted in the face by a man. The police officer shoots her. Really heartbreaking. Where is the church? Where's the evangelicals, you out there too? Where's the Catholic church? Where's, where are churches saying, hey, we have neighborhoods that are destroyed and broken? No, we... We, we take a police officer, we, we walk him up to the guillotine, we chop off his head, we feel good. And, but yet nothing is, no one's addressing the real problems at the border with the trafficking, yeah. the human trafficking. Uh, a child, you know, last week died in the, in the river, drowned coming over to this country. Um, now we know, you know, they're sending children here without parents alone. Where is the church? We, I, I don't even expect Bishop Barron, let alone any other bishop that with prominence, because they'll be yanked, the microphone will be yanked from them from the USCCB. But do you, I don't even expect any more for the church to wade into complex issues. No. no, I don't either. I forget I forget sometimes that the church exists because it makes so little impact in the world. Um, I, I, I'm, oh, yeah, uh, Sunday. Let's see, can I, sign it? Can I get a slot? No, there's no no more room on the sign-up list. So, okay, I'm, I'm exempted from going to Mass. I'll just try to say the rosary at some point today. I mean, the, and the church seems to be happy with that. They don't want to reopen. They're still living off their PPP loans. They're like it's the Uber work. driver. I had an Uber driver in Dallas. I said, you must be excited. Things are opening up. He goes, I, I miss the days when I could just sit at home and get my, cash my unemployment check. That was a lot better than this. I'm like, what? That really? Man be, really? That man should be a bishop. He should be a bishop. He should be a bishop. All right, Jason. I think uh, we've exhausted All right, this. John Everybody Spirit. go out, buy my, buy my graphic novel, The Grand Inquisitor, if you want to understand Pope Francis. Hey, hey, <laughs> and John. read me at stream.org. Stream.org. Read John at the stream.org. Yeah. Listen to him on Eric Metaxas. 
uh, his, the one of the best things about being your friend is uh, you sent me that graphic novel like when we first met, and um, and I, you know what people, what you just did, John, is what why I wanted to do this podcast. I, I thought John just I called John, and then he gives me a lecture that I'd have to spend. You know, I'd have to, for the for the cost of my conversations with Samaric if I went to a university, this would probably cost me. Well, what is it? What does it cost for three credit hours at Yale now for semester oh, probably, course? Probably ten thousand dollars. Ten thousand dollars. So I get ten thousand dollars more uh, a semester <laughs> in conversations with you, and I felt like that's what we captured today, <laughs> Professor Doctor Zmirak on the Jason Jones Show, lecturing us and um, follow John at the stream. Buy the graphic novel in the show notes. John, I'm going to press your mute so you can jump off and we don't hear the beep. Thank you. God bless. God bless. Bye-bye. All right, guys, that was the great Dr. Smirak. You know, this is what I do. I talk to John every day. We're, we're working on several book projects together, and um, we're always, like, looking at what is – I'll call John. John, here's the problem. We have um, – you know, illiberalism in the left, illiberalism in the right. Let's create a writing strategy on how we can push back. Let's look for news hooks. Let's push back on illiberalism left and right. And then, and then I'll say, you know, I'm looking at, you know, common law going back to 1066 is sort of our ground to push back against these modernists. And we just talk for an hour and then he'll lecture me and he gives me an hour lecture on, uh, and, and he's brilliant. So that's what we got today. And for those of you who are not Catholic, you're like, I thought those guys were Catholic. We're Catholic. We're frustrated. For those of you who are Catholic, if you are not frustrated, then you, as a, if you're a parent, you are not taking serious your duty to make sure your children get a Catholic education. Like, this is very important to me. And it is a great scandal that I took my daughter, uh, of my seven children, one really wants to go to school. She wants to try school. So we took her to this Catholic school. It was beautiful. You know, there were crosses above every door. It was just exciting, and they seemed to be very orthodox. And then after we visited the school, we set up our, our time for a visit. Uh, I, 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 she, my daughter would get to go for the school for a day by herself. Then we found out she needed to be vaccinated. She had to take all of these vaccines, many of them derived uh, from aborted fetuses, that's just not happening for my family. We're not taking vaccines derived by aborted fetuses. And then we sent the principal a letter. She wouldn't even respond to my wife because now we were no longer potential customers. She got a really sort of like memo that you would expect to get in Nazi Germany. You know, the party says, the government, the dictates are. And it said, we, we expect 100% compliance. That was, literally that sentence was in there, 100% compliance on vaccines. Just really kind of a gross sentence and then I said to my wife I'm so glad we're not sending our daughter there because clearly this school is not infused with the Christian understanding of liberty and the dignity of the human person why would I want to send my child thanks thank God that this was the canary in the coal mine thank God this was required because it revealed that this school was not grounded in an authentic Christian anthropology an authentic Christian vision of the human person an authentic understanding of freedom and liberty of the human person. Why would I want my daughter to go there? But, you know, it is quite frustrating that I cannot count on my diocese to be my partner and making sure my children get an authentic Catholic education. That's very sad. And maybe, um, maybe this isn't appropriate, but 
I actually get more upset. I get more upset that my church is utterly silent on the great human rights issues of the age. What a scandal. And for those of you who are a part of the donor class, major donors, your bishop has you on speed dial, shame on you for all of this too. Because we are responsible. They don't, they don't feel accountable. Like what a scandal that the USCCB hasn't made a, a hard-hitting statement I think the USC should be disbanded. I've been writing that for a decade. But if they're going to exist, why haven't they said anything about what's happening to our co-religionists, Christians, and the CCP? Not to mention the Falun Gong, others, and the atrocity against the Uyghur. Um, it's just a scandal. And um, so I think John's series of articles tries to get at the heart of it. I don't know if I disagree, if I agree with his point really, though. I think it simply comes down to prefer, preferential option for the powerful. You either have a preferential option for the vulnerable. You are either kissing up or you are kissing down. You are either kneeling before the truly vulnerable or you are bowing and kneeling before the powerful. You know, when John was going off about the Lavender Mafia, those of you formed by the spirit of the age were cringing at that. But you didn't flinch when he talked about the harvesting of organs in the CCP. You didn't flinch when he talked about Pope Francis sending his, his, his cardinal on social justice to China to address a meeting of literally the agency that harvests organs. You didn't flinch. Why? Because you conform to the spirit of the age. You are a willful servant of the spirit of the age. You kneel before the powerful and you respect their holy language. You respect their priesthood, but yet you will never truly serve the vulnerable. So when Nicholas Sandman is being attacked by the mass media, the whole world is coming against him. Bishop Barron was bing, bang, boom, had a statement against this young man and then didn't even make a firm apology, probably because his lawyers told him not to, seeing that Sandman was suing everyone and winning. What did he do? He said, I probably shouldn't have been so quick to jump into those things that I'm going to stay out of in the future. No, what he should have said is, you know, Rene Girard, Bishop Barron loves to quote Rene Girard, said we need to stand in solidarity with the vulnerable one becomes vulnerable. I'm going to uh, make a commitment in the future not to be swept away by the spirit of the age and stand with the mob against the vulnerable. I'm going to stand with the scapegoat against the mob. I'm going to try to do that in the future. You know, that's what he should have said. And so I think that's the big battle. So I disagree with John maybe on his main point today. I think it just comes down to people are swept away by the spirit of the age. They lack the courage to stand up against the mob. They lack the, the courage to stand up against uh, Nike, Google, Facebook, Twitter, you know, Costco, Apple, all these companies that have, by the way, partnered with the CCP that are sponsoring the Olympics. I've ranted enough. I don't even know where I'm going anymore. All right. I'm just frustrated. I don't want to be the angry radio talk show host. This episode is being brought to you by Movie to Movement, creating a culture of life, love, and beauty through the power of film, standing up to the spirit of the age with movies. Go to movietomovement.com, check out our latest film, Divided Hearts of America, starring Benjamin Watson, where we reveal the racist roots of the abortion industry, not just Margaret Sanger, that industry 
Now Planned Parenthood has come out and said, we apologize. Our founder was a racist and a eugenicist. Actually, all of your founders were. Your founders, the money from Gamble, of Procter & Gamble, good friends with Margaret Sanger, racist and eugenicist, right? Stoddard, racist and eugenicist. The whole crowd, Mary Stopes, her friend from the UK, racist and eugenicist. Well, if you want to know all about that, go to movingmovement.com, watch our movie, Divided Hearts of America. And this episode is also being brought to you by My Pillow. You guys have to go get the slippers. They are they are on, they are forty percent off, but that is for a very very limited time, for the Jason Jones Show listeners. So you got to go to mypillow.com, click on the radio listener square, use the code Jones. And this episode is also being brought to you by the Vulnerable People Project. I founded the Vulnerable People Project as a program of hero. It was really our first program. We rebranded it. Why? Because I discovered as a college student who wanted to be a human rights activist, can you imagine I leave the army and I'm looking to apply to Reed College and Colgate College and all of these peace studies programs, and then I realized they were just Bolsheviks and nuts, and I'm so glad I didn't go to any of those schools. I went to the University of Hawaii. and um, But I wanted to found a human rights organization that really advocated for the, the most vulnerable that it was not popular to stand with. And the first issue I wanted to, abortion and malaria were sort of the two issues that really captured my mind in college because I noticed all these neoliberal human rights organizations were one by one adding quote-unquote reproductive rights to their issues they fight for. So they were founded to protect humans from violence, and now they're advocating violence against humans. Struck me as kind of odd that even Amnesty International, founded by a Jesuit priest, eventually bailed on the preborn. Initially, they stood with the preborn, but you know, the spirit of the age would get them. And then malaria, DDT, which was the most effective way to eradicate malaria, these neoliberal environmental organizations were pushing to keep this ban in place that was responsible for half a billion deaths. Well, eventually the global ban was lifted because of pressure from, you know, because of half a billion Asians and Africans died from malaria course we use ddt in the united states and europe whenever we had any sort of airborne encephalitis we would dust it off the ddt and spray it all over um even when i was in college it was one case of airborne encephalitis in new jersey and they blanketed the entire eastern sea, uh, seaboard of the, this country with ddt meanwhile africa and asia no no bad for the environment bad for birds all nonsense the ban was lifted okay so here i am and i said i am going to spend the rest of my life fighting for the vulnerable where the people who are after foundation grants and corporate sponsorships uh, will fail to show up. That's where I will be. And that's the founding principle of the Vulnerable People Project, where the Rockefeller Foundation, where corporate sponsors like Nike are nowhere to be found, you know, that's where we will be. Where it's dangerous that's where we will be. We're never going to stand with a group where it's, you know, in vogue. Why would we? If it's popular, they're truly not vulnerable. That's what you need to know. If it's popular, how could it be popular without risk to stand with the truly vulnerable population? That doesn't even make sense. So the truly vulnerable are going to have very few people standing by their side. It used to be 
we had whole denominations in the Catholic Church and Protestant Church and Evangelical Church. And I have to tell you now, we don't have the Catholic Church committed as, as an institution standing with principle with the vulnerable. Our leadership has become victimists, feigning concern for faux vulnerable populations for wealth, prestige, and power, as has, God forbid, the Evangelical Church has been swept away into pop victimism, feigning concern for faux vulnerable communities for wealth, power, prestige, right? So what, there, what exists in the world today is a scattering of beautiful people who, for whatever reason, usually a great injustice that they experience themselves, are truly committed to the vulnerable. People like Eric Metaxas, people like Sally Hedaya, and others who we have on the show. So when you become a monthly donor to the Vulnerable People Project, you can know that you are standing with an organization that is relentless and fighting for the vulnerable. I was... Last week, oh, and that's the greatcampaign.org. Become a monthly donor. We need monthly donors. Uh, that makes it good, easier for us to budget. Most of our projects, uh, like we're, we have a big building project that we're partnering with in the Middle East. I can, I'm going to be able to tell you more about, hopefully, uh, in the fall, something we've been working on for two years and I cannot wait to tell you about, where we have grants uh, that come specifically for a project, whether it's a movie or whether it's a building project or a well wells relief project. But what I've been very bad at is getting our overhead covered. So I'm always scrambling. When you become a monthly donor at thegreatcampaign.org, it helps us do that, uh, and it helps me budget. Um, yeah, this has been the longest commercial ever. But that's what we do. When you, when you uh, stand with Movie to Movement and the Vulnerable People Project, when you partner with us, you know that you will be truly standing in solidarity with the vulnerable. Oh, this is what I was going to tell you. My ADHD. Um, I was on a movie set this week in Los Angeles on a movie project. And the producer said to me in front of the cast and crew, he said, yeah, Jason Jones is here. Uh, for those of you who don't know, he's going to try to rewrite the script and uh, get us to put the Uyghur in our movie. And then a lot of people on set were like, well, the Uyghur? Who are the Uyghur? Wait, what are you talking about? But then I laughed. But it made me, I was grateful that this man looked at me and thought Uyghur. I'm glad that he saw me on his set. I was there for some consulting. And he thought the Uyghur. It came to his mind. And I'm going to end on this. And this is what Rene Girard said. When you stand in solidarity with the vulnerable, you become indistinguishable to the crowd from the vulnerable. So when they look at you, they see the abandoned scapegoat. They see the other left alone, yet now they are no longer alone. And that is our mission. It's the mission of this podcast. Um, that is the mission of our sponsors, that the abandoned truly never feel alone. So if today it seemed a little negative against the bishops, I have to tell you, I do get bitter that these big, powerful institutions are utterly, utterly absent and silent in any meaningful and real way to defend the truly vulnerable from the child in the womb to those families in Chinese-occupied East Turkestan. But rather than curse the darkness, uh, we light candles. And that's what we do. So go to thegreatcampaign.org. All right, until next time, The Jason Jones Show. 
This has been the Jason Jones Show, powered by Mudhouse Media. Thank you.